Let's go now to the book of John, John chapter 6. As we did last week, Jesus finished up the Bread of Life discourse. He concluded his message in the synagogue in Capernaum. Now, we don't know for sure where this next, uh, these next couple of verses happened, uh, kind of closing out chapter six. It could have been outside the synagogue. There was, uh, they've, you know, they've discovered the ruins of the synagogue. It could have been in this outside courtyard area that, that what we're about to read today happened. Um, it could have been inside the synagogue following his message. They could have stopped him in there to, to visit with him. But what we're going to see this morning is really the aftermath of his teaching. And it wasn't pretty. The, the aftermath was not pretty. This is not what a Bible teacher would want after he finishes giving a lecture, pouring his heart out into this message. You want to see people respond. You want to see people get excited about what you're saying. It was the exact opposite for Jesus. This is an incredible thing because many were not comfortable with what he just said. In fact, they weren't comfortable with the claims he was making regarding his identification. They, they didn't, they weren't comfortable with that. They weren't comfortable, most of all, with how far he took the bread metaphor, right? In fact, we, we saw that last, let me just read that. Verse 53 to give you a taste if you weren't here last week. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And as soon as he went that far in the metaphor, they're like, ooh, man, that just, ooh, that's hard. In fact, that's what they're going to say this morning. Ooh, that's, that's hard, <laughs> That's difficult. I don't, I don't get that. I'm not sure I'm with that. And they're, they're processing this throughout this message this morning. And so we're going to look at three main responses. This morning, we're going to look at the response of many of his disciples. Now, these aren't the 12. We're going to get the response of the 12 after the response of the many. We'll, we'll see that next week. And then as we get into chapter 7, we're going to see the response of his brothers. Okay, we're going to see the response of his family. So we're going to see three responses. This morning, we're actually going to look at the many and as I mentioned, this is their response. They're just like, wow, I, I don't know what to do with this. This is very difficult. And so let's read verses 60 and 61. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this said, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? And so notice, by the way, who is saying this? Who is having a hard time? It's not the group of unbelieving Jews. Who is it? It's disciples. It's people who have been following him. It is, it is people who have maybe sacrificed at some level to, to actually uh, follow Jesus and, and to walk around and to hear him teach. These are people that have heard him teach that have followed him to some extent. Now, we don't get an idea of how long they did, but this is, he, he categorizes these people as disciples or followers of Jesus. In fact, what's really interesting about this is when you go down to verse 64, which we'll do in a second, some of these disciples had not even believed, but they were disciples, but they hadn't believed. In fact, look at verse 64. Jesus is gonna say this. We're gonna see this here, uh, but there are some of you who do not believe. Who's he talking to? He's talking to this group of disciples. Now, that's an interesting point. Judas was there. Judas was a disciple, but Judas never believed in Jesus Christ. And I think what's interesting about this, and we'll kind of bring this out a little bit more when we get to verse 64, is that the term disciple is not synonymous with the term believer. And do you know there are many Bible teachers today that will just die on that hill, that if you are a believer, then you have to be a disciple. And if you are a disciple, you have to be a believer. 
that doesn't teach this in this text. It shows that you can be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, never having believed or trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ. In fact, what does the modern church, and I don't want to pick too much on other churches, we, right? We got our own problems here when you just focus on what we're doing, et cetera, et cetera. But have you noticed that in the modern church, the terminology now is not I'm a believer, not I'm born again, not I've trusted in the finished work of Christ alone, but I'm what? I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a follower of Christ. Do you know what? Every one of the people that we're going to read about this morning could have said the same thing and they were on their way to hell saying it. That's what's crazy about this. It's not about following Jesus. That's the end goal, but we got to get you in the family first. You, you need to be wired for sound first. You need to be born again first before following Jesus even matters. And we're going to see that in this group this morning. They were following Jesus. And you know, many, many religious people would have been on the side. Oh man, good for them. Yeah, that's where you want to be. You want to be following Jesus. No, they need to be trusting in Jesus. That's the point. And we're going to see that they missed the boat here uh, this morning. We also see or learn from verse 66 that for some of these disciples, it was this very dialogue that was the breaking point. They didn't want to follow Jesus after this dialogue. This set them over the edge. And you know what? It's completely mind-blowing because to set the context again, this is the exact crowd that had just saw what the day before. Jesus feed 15,000 people from a boy's lunch. And now because he said something slightly offensive, oh, we're done with him. It's just mind-blowing. It's just crazy how, how quickly things can change. And this is what they say. This is a, a hard saying. Is is a present tense verb. In the very midst of this discussion, they're, they're wrestling through this. This is, this is hard. This is difficult. And, and that's really what the word means, difficult. It can mean other things too. But based upon the question that Jesus is going to ask them here, I don't think they're just saying, wow, this is difficult intellectually to understand. I, I think they got it intellectually. I think that's what was giving them the problem. What they didn't understand is why was Jesus being so difficult with this metaphor? And I think hard in this passage means it's difficult to take. It's, as we said last week, using another metaphor, it's difficult to swallow, right? But it's not difficult to understand. They understood it. And that was what was giving them heartburn regarding what he was saying. You would hope that the 12 weren't involved in this. But you know what? The text doesn't say. They were men. They, they were humans, just like all of us, right? They were men. They, they, they could have been involved in this too. Man, man this is hard. Man, this is, I'm choking on this, right? And to use another metaphor, sorry. So I'm just on a roll here. We're metaphoring it to death. But they're choking on what he's saying here. Maybe the disciples were involved. We don't really know. The text doesn't say. It might be why Jesus asked him what he does in verse 67, kind of looking forward to next, uh, next week. What does he say in verse 67? Then Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? You know, <laughs> maybe they were griping too. We don't know. The text doesn't say, but it's possible that that's true. Who can understand it? Who can hear it? Who can understand it with a desire to respond to it? This is hearing with the ear of the mind. This is hearing with the goal of processing what was being said to understand it. And what was their big issue here? Jesus is going to identify it for us here soon. But the big issue is they heard what he was teaching. They only viewed it on a horizontal level. It was all physical. They didn't understand the spiritual significance, the spiritual truth that he was sharing here regarding eating the bread and, and drinking of his blood, so to speak. 
And so the question being asked is, who has the ability to truly understand and respond to it? It's so difficult. Who could respond? How would they respond if they did respond? And so when Jesus knew in himself, uh, he says, when he knew in himself, this word know uh, that's used here means to know intuitively or to know instinctively. The, the idea is that he didn't gain this knowledge, that he had this knowledge, okay? Now, there's probably some things that confirmed what he already knew, basically looking at their body language, looking at their facial expressions. But this idea is he knew in himself. It, it was almost like he knew when, when he would take that metaphor a little bit farther, he knew how they would respond. He just knew instinctively and intuitively that they were going to have a problem with what he was saying. Also, the, to kind of support that, the, the new uh, the no word here is the perfect tense. That's why it's kind of past tense. It's in the past tense form because it, it indicates a completed action with ongoing results. So he knew before he said it is kind of the idea. And he continued to know that they were choking on it while he was talking to them. He knew within himself. And, and so I'm sure their facial expressions, like I mentioned, their body language kind of conveyed that as well. And so this is why when he says he knew in himself, it's interesting because it seems to communicate. And you'll see this in John. John is very subtle. He doesn't come out and tell you this. But as you observe, it, it, oftentimes you can see that it seems that Jesus was using his divine attributes here, that he was utilizing his omniscience, his all-knowing power here, obviously independence upon the Father because he never did that independently from the Father. But the Father allowed him to use that here because he knew their thoughts without them having to verbalize it. He knew their thoughts without actually having to hear the words being said. In fact, the word used here, complained, describes really an internal uh, reaction to a situation. Internal either to others or, or, or to just keeping it to yourself. Have you ever been in a crowd? Maybe you're standing next to a stranger and somebody says something or somebody does something. All right. You know, I just remember, you know, flying, flying in an airport, right? I'm just, you're in a room full of strangers and, and they come on the intercom system and, uh, you know, attention, those on flight 473, we, you know, we've got bad news, your flight's been delayed. And I don't need to hear anything from my neighbor. I can sense that they're grumbling, right? I, I don't need to hear the words. I, I, just when that announcement's made, they're like, oh. <laughs> That's really what this word is saying here, Okay. So you kind of know something's up. They don't have to verbalize it. But, but, but even some people, they don't make even that noise. They keep it to themselves, but you can, you can see it. And so Jesus is seeing this. It's interesting. It's the same word that was used earlier of the unbelieving Jews in the crowd. By the way, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, it's the same word that was used of the Exodus generation in the wilderness. You know, they kept trying to compare them, compare Jesus to Moses. Now Jesus is saying, you know what? Y'all are just like them too. <laughs> Y'all are just like the crowd. Y'all are griping and complaining. They were griping and complaining. They were murmuring against Moses. So it's interesting that the same word uh, is used here. And, and so he knew in himself. And notice again, who's the one doing the griping and the complaining? Look at, look at verse 61. It's the disciples. It's the people who were following Jesus that were griping and complaining. Now, we know that doesn't happen even with believers in our day. Now, believers never gripe or complain about anything, do we? No, I mean, so these are unsaved disciples, unsaved followers of Jesus who are griping and complaining about what he was teaching. And, and additionally, this, this word complaint is in the present tense, 
Right now in this moment, they were griping and complaining. And so Jesus, knowing this, he's, he's in a sense caught them red-handed, and so he's going to confront them. He's going to confront them with a, qu- a question, and this is what he's going to say. If you go to verse 61, he's just going to bring the elephant out from the corner, right? He's going to bring the elephant out. He said, does this offend you? Offend is, is a Greek word. You can, you can kind of see it. That's why I put it up there, scandalizo. You can start it scandalize. It's a scandal. It's kind of you know, where we might derive our word from. It means to cause to stumble or fall. Figuratively, it meant becoming a stumbling block to someone. And so Jesus is saying, did I cause you to stumble? Did I put a stumbling block in front of you with this teaching is kind of the idea. And you know what? If they were being honest, and they they are going to answer the question in verse 66 with their actions, but eating someone's flesh and drinking someone's blood would have been naturally offensive to many Jews. That's just naturally offensive. We talked about last week, even in the sacrificial system, they were commanded not to eat blood. They were commanded to drain the blood. They could eat some of the meat, but they weren't to touch the blood. That was uh, sacred. That's where the life of the animal was found. And so to even use this metaphor, you could say Jesus was edgy. This was a little edgy. This was kind of pushing the metaphor further out. And so it was kind of a I think Jesus is doing like many teachers do. Sometimes they'll use a shock and awe kind of statement to, to really get somebody's attention. And I think what he's trying to, uh, to get their attention was to show that he was superior than, than to Moses, that he was truly who he was claiming to be, that he could truly provide and execute the promises that he was making all throughout this discourse. And so he, he's being a little edgy if you will, if we can use that statement about the Lord. I mean, it's perfect, right? Nothing he did was wrong. But he's definitely pushing the boundaries here to challenge his, his listeners because they, they weren't getting it. You can kind of follow that throughout the Bread of Life discourse. They just weren't getting it each and every time. And so the answer to the question is going to be given in their eventual response. Verse 66, they were offended. They did stumble. This is why they quit moving forward with Jesus in the future. What's interesting is just a cross-reference verse. Paul is going to describe in 1 Corinthians that Jesus in his crucifixion was a scandalizo to the Jewish mind. He's going to say that, 1 Corinthians one twenty-three. Same word, it's just in a noun form. But he says, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. So not only was this teaching on the bread of life discourse a stumbling block, But even in the future, when Jesus would die and rise again, that would become a stumbling block to this same group of Jewish people. As we move on into the next verse, uh, verse 62, you know, just in studying it, you're, you know, you're trying to understand the flow of why Jesus says things and why he kind of moves to the next topic or whatever. Best I can make out of this is Jesus is now going to ask them a question in verse 62 that's actually designed to get them thinking in the future. And what do I mean by that? He's making a point here. He's going to make a point in verse 62 that I believe he hopes his audience will knowledge bank so that when he rises from the dead and ascends to the father, they'll recall that he said this. Uh, That's what I think he's doing because what he's going to say here in verse 62 is, is basically, what if what I'm saying is vindicated? What if what I'm saying is true and that's proven by the fact that I ascend. Will you believe then? That's kind of, I think, what he's, he's doing there. And I think he's planting a seed for future watering and harvest. 
is what I think he's doing with this group. Because right now, I don't think there's anything he could say to convince them. There's nothing more he can do to convince them, say to convince them. But he's kind of pointing out the fact, he's kind of like Babe Ruth, he's calling his shot. I'm going to ascend. And when I do, will that vindicate it for you? Will that convince you that what I was telling you is the truth? And this is how verse 62 reads. What then, if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? By the way, Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of Man. What's he going back to? Daniel 7, over and over and over again. They didn't see the Son of Man needing to ascend. They saw the Son of Man coming down from heaven to establish a kingdom. So all of this stuff is designed to kind of really challenge kind of their cultural thinking about everything and how this all fits together. But what would what then? So the implication is that they're offended now. How would they feel if they actually witnessed his ascension back to heaven, vindicating his message? And I think the question is, would they believe then? Would they be convinced that he was telling them the truth then? Would they be convinced that he could keep the promises that he was making then if he ascended to heaven? And so again, it's a subtle way of telling them he's going to ascend and return to heaven. And when he does, remember this conversation. Remember what I told you when this is all over. And so they needed to believe in him, which would effectively unite them to him. Now, Jesus is, in the next verse, he's going to explain why it's been hard for them to understand. He's, he's going to kind of give them a, a backstory as to why this is so difficult for them to understand. He's going to provide them uh, with an explanation of how he is providing spiritual truth, and they are missing it. So Jesus is kind of, and you've had conversations like that with people in life where you're, you're talking and you feel like you're communicating clearly, but they're just like, they're hearing you like down here and y'all are just like two planes flying by each other. Well, that's always true in the area of spiritual truth for unbelievers. So Jesus is speaking here and his audience is hearing him down here and they, and they're just missing the point. And Jesus is basically going to explain that to them by saying a very popular verse, John uh, 6, 63 uh, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Now this verb gives life is a compound word in the Greek. It means to make alive or to vivify. If you haven't used that, if you haven't had that word, Scrabble users, grab that one. That's a nice one. No one will see that. It's kind of very rarely used. I left it in there, but to make alive, right? To to vivify, to bring to life. And so the spirit of God is the one who gives life. And Jesus is simply pointing out that the teaching he just provided is spiritual teaching and it's gotta be spiritually understood. See, they're finding it hard to swallow. They're, they're choking on this teaching. It's difficult to take. It's difficult to accept, but it's because they're trying to receive what he's teaching on a horizontal level. And when you do that, it doesn't make sense. This is why religion has a racket and has always had a racket because they can convince horizontal thinking people that you got to do something to go to heaven. That fits natural man. That fits the mindset of natural man. Ain't no such thing as a free lunch. I got to do something. And that's why religion has profited off of that type of thinking for thousands and thousands of years. And, and quite frankly, the Bible, if people, if we could just read the Bible and communicate the message of Jesus, we just put religion out of business. And then it would all be, it would all be about Jesus and not about you. The spotlight would remain on the son of God who died for you and rose again, and it wouldn't get bumped to you. 
But this is why religion is still, to this day, got so much influence. People are thinking on a horizontal level. They're trying to understand something that only the Spirit of God can provide understanding. Paul also details this in 1 Corinthians 2.14 when he says, but the natural man, speaking of the unsaved man, which is Jesus's audience here, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Does that describe Jesus's audience to a T? They're like, Psh, eat your flesh, drink your blood. That's foolish. That's dumb right? This is kind of their idea. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And see, again, Jesus is teaching on this plane. They're understanding it on this plane. And instead of saying, well, maybe I'm misunderstanding, having a little humility, maybe asking Jesus for clarification. They're like, no, I understand. He's just weird. (laughs) That's their evaluation. No, no, I'm getting what he's saying. He's just a weirdo and we're going to leave him. And they should have, you know, at some level realized this. And so Jesus is saying, uh, guys, the spirit of God is in, endorses my message. You know, we're getting ready to get into political season. I endorse this message. The spirit of God is endorsing Jesus's message. And so much so that he provides the life-making component when people actually respond to Jesus's message. And you see this throughout the scriptures. You'll see the spirit of God, this, this compound Greek word actually gives life. It's used other places to refer to the new birth. It's when, when you're born again, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the spirit of God is the one that actuates or gives life when somebody trusts in Jesus Christ alone. And by the way, the flesh profits a little, right? No, that's not, <laughs> that's not what this verse says. Bodily exercise profits a little. That's maybe what we're thinking of. The flesh profits what? Nothing. So you, you know, and that's the thing we've got to understand. The word profit means to be useful or helpful. The, the thing that we've got to understand that when we come to attempt to understand spiritual truth, it is not about cranking your view that you already hold into the scriptures and making it say what you want it to say. Now I'm preaching to myself here as much as I'm preaching to each one of us because we have this tendency to want the scriptures to say what we already believe because we don't like to be wrong. We don't like to be corrected. We don't like to be bumped or adjusted in our thinking. And at some point we have to be convinced like Peter is, and I'm just gonna rob the, the, the point next week, but go to, go to verse 68. One of the best comments I believe in all of scripture, which each one of us should adopt in our Bible study in life. But Peter, Simon Peter, Jesus says, do you also want to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You know what I'm saying? Like, why do we not want God's truth to bump our thinking? I'm 46 years old. I've seen enough of John Clark's thinking already. And, and, and I'm like 20 years in already where I've actually realized I don't like the way that I think. I don't trust the way that I think. I'm not gonna rely on the way that I think unless I forget that I'm an idiot and I do it again, which I do often. At what point can we be convinced that the flesh profits nothing? You don't want your will. Trust me, you don't want your will. <laughs> do, we, I, do we agree with that? We do in a, in, a, in a setting where we're in a culture, we're in a beaker, We're on a chemistry table called church. We agree with that statement. 
The second we hit those doors, I want my will. I want my way. I want things to go the way I want. I want God to do it on the timing that I want. I mean, is it not true? We all do that. Trust me, trust me, trust me. You don't want your will in this life. You want his will. And we need to get out of the way and stop blocking that by just tracking down what we think we need and want because you don't know what you want or need. Only he does. And so we need to encourage one another with that truth. We're all going through trials. We're all going through tribulations. And every one of us, as we sit there, if we're being honest with ourselves, we just want out from under them by any means necessary. And you know what? God's got a purpose for you in it. He wants to do something with you, for you, through you in the trial. And we need brothers and sisters in Christ to say, you don't want your own will in this. Let's trust the Lord together. Let's walk in dependence on the Lord. Now, that was kind of a sidebar that really had nothing to do with this. But I, but I, wanted, to sh- I, you know, I wanted to share that. The flesh profits nothing. Do we believe that or not? It doesn't profit a little. It profits nothing. And this is what Jesus wants his audience to understand. The words that I speak to you are spirit they are life. All of these verbs are present tense. Right now, what I'm saying is right now, spirit, is right now life. I am providing life in the very words that I'm speaking to you is what Jesus is saying. And they're just rejecting. This is a weirdo. Like, here, you want up front? You can, you can. That's what they're going to do. You know, they're up front listening, listening. They're like, hey, you want up front? I'm going to the back of the line. And then when I get back there, I'm just taking off. That's how they're going to respond. They're missing the point. They're not getting life out of this. And so the reason, by the way, Jesus can speak life-giving words, and we've talked about that, he is life. (laughs) Everything he does is life. We were studying Philemon in Sunday school, and one of the things about Philemon, uh, I think it's in in verse 7 of Philemon uh, 1, actually chapter 2. Those that know Philemon know why that's a joke, but Philemon 1, verse 7, right? It says that he refreshed the hearts of the saints. And see, that's when a, when a believer is walking in dependence on the Lord, the, the life of the Lord Jesus is living in and through that believer's life. They communicate life to others. But imagine being around the Lord Jesus himself, who is always and only life. Can you imagine being around someone that every time you're around them, it's pleasant, it's refreshing, it's motivating, it's fulfilling? That's Jesus Christ for you right there. And you know what? That's why in Psalm 6, I think it's 16, it says that in his presence is fullness of joy. You don't have to wait for that to when you get to heaven. You can have fellowship with him right now. And when you have that fellowship with him, you can experience fullness of joy. And see, they're missing out on this because they didn't like his metaphor. They were thinking horizontally. They didn't humble themselves. What am I missing here? Jesus, can you explain this to me? I'm missing something. No, they just said, no, he's a weirdo, we're out. It's kind of the deal. So again, Jesus' teaching was not just some ramblings of some crazy rabbi that just got half cocked one day and just started ripping and roaring about all sorts of weird things. He wasn't mentally unstable. He wasn't teaching people cannibalism. Again, he wasn't teaching the Lord's Supper here. He was teaching via metaphor, true and spiritual life giving words. In fact, if they would have believed his words, they would have believed in him and they would have possessed eternal life. Never hungered again. 
never been thirsty again. That's what Jesus was offering. This, these are true life-giving words. And now as we, we kind of move forward in the passage, um, I kind of got to, I need to flip my page back here. One of the things that you're going to see in verse 64 is, um, you know, we keep coming back to this. But if you recall, let me just take you back. John chapter 2, it's been a while since we've been there. Verses 24 and 25. Remember what the text said about Jesus? He knows all men. He knows what's in all men. He knows all men. He knows what's in all men. And then he kind of revealed that in his conversation with Nicodemus. He revealed that in his conversation with the woman at the well. He's going to reveal that again here uh, because of what he's going to say, what he understands about his audience. And in verse 64, uh, we read this, but there are some of you who do not believe for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who did not believe and who would betray him. This contrast now. Okay. So here's spirit, life-giving words, but and the idea is like, you know, to put it in, in Southern language, y'all don't want it. This kind of the idea here it is, but y'all didn't want it. And this is basically what he's saying. And at this point, it doesn't matter what he did or what he said. Someone would reject him. And again, these are disciples. This is tragic. This is actually a group of people who had followed Jesus, who had listened to Jesus. This was probably the group of people that had chased him around the Sea of Galilee, you know, trying to find out where he's going, calculate and ran on land to be there. Saw that he left the next day ran on and were diligently searching for him on the other side of the lake. This is this group of people. They probably, as I mentioned before, sacrificed time. They probably sacrificed money to follow him. And yet they never believed in him. And again, it just shows that being a believer is not synonymous with being a disciple. And, and if, and if that's, if you're like, why is he making a big deal of that? I'm making a big deal because there's so many Bible teachers in our day that are saying they're synonymous and this is a passage that just shows they're not synonymous. In fact, just being a believer is not synonymous with being a disciple. And just being a disciple is not synonymous with being a believer. In fact, let me show you another example. When we get to John 12, now we're going to see believers who are not disciples. They're saved, but they're not following Jesus. Here, we've got people who are following Jesus, but aren't even saved. John 12, 42 through 43. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. These were believers. They just weren't following Jesus because they were embarrassed and they didn't want to lose their status. So what does that say about them? They're believers who didn't want to lose their status. That's all it says about them. They're saved, they're born again, but they're ashamed of Jesus. Can believers do that? Of course. If you go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, we don't have a time to go there. All of those conditional statements, we've taught this in the past, all those conditional statements are, are first-class conditions. They assume the reality that you're, you will deny Christ in your life. You will be faithless in your life. The encouragement is he remains faithful because he made the promise based when you trusted in the finished work of Christ to forgive you of all your sins. You'll never perish. You have eternal life. He made that promise. And so here we've got this exact opposite view in John 12 that you've got believers who didn't follow Jesus. And what's really crazy is the ones that follow Jesus in John 6 are the ones that are going to end up in hell if they never trusted in him. 
And the ones who trusted in him and were too chicken to follow him, they'll be in heaven. Because it's not about you. <laughs> it's not about your behavior. It's about the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. And so we see, again, these are not synonymous. In fact, Jesus says, some out of your group. And, and, and what we're going to see is, uh, I think, as he comes back to verse 65, God was drawing them. God was drawing them. They weren't responding. And, and, and the reason we say that here is they were distracted by many things, right? They, they didn't get the main thing. In fact, this is probably the same group, if you recall. It's been a few weeks. Uh, John six fifteen, kind of before he crosses the lake. This was the same group that wanted to kidnap Jesus and force him to be their king. Same exact group. Missing the main point. Miss, missing the main thing that Jesus is trying to communicate. They're very distractive. Now, this word believe is in the present tense, meaning right now, in this moment, they were not convinced to put their trust in Jesus. Now, what's really important, especially as we go into verse 65, which is often taken as an island in and of itself, but this verb is an active voice verb, meaning that they were choosing not to believe out of their own volition. And what does that mean? That means they had the ability to believe, but they chose not to believe. As we go to verse 65, people are going to say, see, only the ones that God gives the ability, they will believe, but no, God doesn't give the ability to everybody. And so thus they can't believe. It's not about can't believe here. That would have to be passive voice. It's active voice. They could believe. They chose not to believe. The reason they could believe, if we go back to verse 44, is because the father had drawn them. He cleared the deck so that now that they have the ability to believe, they're just choosing not to. They're just choosing to reject Jesus on the basis of this teaching. And what else, in what ways was the father drawing them? Well, the multiple healing miracles done prior to the feeding of the 15,000 was not enough to convince them. Go back to John 6, 2. They they had seen these miracles, not enough. The feeding of the 5,000 that we saw earlier in John 6, not enough. And now the subsequent teaching provided by Jesus, the spread of life discourse, not enough to convince them. They were choosing, uh, even uh, being drawn by all of these things, they were choosing to not believe or to reject Jesus Christ. So they simply refused to believe him or anything that he was claiming. And guess what? Jesus already knew this. And, and I think when we get there, I, this to me is, is tra- I'll, I'll get, we'll get there. It's just tragic to think about this point, but let me, let me just keep going here. Four is going to further explain, okay, the reason why and how Jesus could say they were not believing, okay? This is how Jesus knows. Uh, this is how Jesus can make this statement. He knows that they did not believe in him. And one of the things we're going to see is that he knew. This is the same word he used earlier. It's intuitive, instinctively, it's in contrast to gaining knowledge. So we might, we might speak to somebody and over time, based on their response and their words, we might gain a knowledge that they're not believing. Jesus knew intuitively, uh, uh, as verse 64 says, he, he knew intuitively from the beginning who they were who did not believe. Now, I bring this out not to try to sound impressive in the Greek, but I want you to understand the shift here because it's, I think it's very important and it speaks to this point. You can see that if you didn't know this in the Greek, you can see it from the phrase from the beginning anyways, but this is why from the beginning 
has a lot more, I, I guess, teeth in it. Because he uses this rare tense uh, in the Greek known as what's called the pluperfect. You just don't, you just don't hear the pluperfect tense very much, right? Unless you've, you've done some kind of Greek study, you might recognize it. Very rare tense. Here's the emphasis, and this is what Jesus uses for this word new. It normally denotes an action that was completed in the past whose results existed in the past without reference to the present. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense now, and we'll, we'll try to explain that. So what is this emphasizing? Well, here's what I believe it's emphasizing. The use of this particular form of knowledge speaks of Jesus's foreknowledge from the beginning of time. This is the idea that he knows things before they happen. It's a very simple way to say Jesus could look into a crowd, and he, and he did in this crowd, and he could look at a face, and he could know she'll never believe. He'll believe. He did believe. She'll never believe. He could look in the faces of the crowd, and he knew this. That's why I said this must have been heartbreaking for the Lord Jesus, to, to be able to look at the faces and knows. Now, it doesn't mean that he controls things. He just knows that things are going to happen before they take place. Can you imagine that? The burden of every time you spoke and preached and shared the gospel, you could look at someone and say, they're never going to get it. Man, just tragic as you think about that. Jesus truly knew all men. He truly knew what was in all men. And so even as he spoke to this audience, he's looking at these lives created in the image of the triune Godhead, and he knew which ones would believe and not believe. You know, the text also tells us that he knew something else. This is even more incredible in some ways. He knew who would betray him. And he's talking about who here? He's talking about Judas. He, he's talking about Judas, and Judas would betray him. We know that from the scriptures. But this also means that in Jesus' foreknowledge, when he chose Judas, he's going to say that later in this passage. I, did I not choose 12 of you and one of you is a devil? That's what he's going to say. He knew from the beginning that Judas was going to betray him. And yet what's so amazing uh, about this uh, is he must have treated Judas in love, even in spite of this foreknowledge. In fact, when we get to John 13, guess who got a foot washing that night? Judas got one. Can you imagine? Less than, less than 12 hours, this very man is going to betray me to a cruel and brutal death, and I'm going to sit down and watch his feet? This is the Lord Jesus for you. Just amazing love. And so in spite of his foreknowledge of his future treachery, it's a testimony of the heart of God. I believe it tells us really two things about Jesus. By the way, when you get to the upper room discourse and Jesus looks across the table and says, one of you is going to betray me. Do you know what's so incredible? And I mean, we, we'll have some fun in that passage, but you know what's so incredible about that passage? The disciples didn't, didn't like look around and go, oh yeah, it's Judas. He's a scumbag. It's got to be Judas. They actually looked around and said, who is it? Some of them were saying, is it me? Like, <laughs> they're like, golly, am I going to do that? Hopefully it's not me, you know? That means no one had tipped the cap. No one knew that Judas was the betrayer. No one knew except Jesus. And what that tells us is this. Jesus loved Judas and treated Judas like everyone else. Can you imagine doing that? Imagine, just go to your workplace. Somebody's competing with you for promotion. They got it out for you. Every chance they get, they undermine you. 
and you make cupcakes for the office and they come in and they grab one of your cupcakes and you're like, oh, that, I can't believe, I would have never, I would have never even made those cupcakes if I knew this person was going to grab one. I'm serious. Like that's our attitude. And here's what Jesus is doing. This, this guy is going to turn him over to a brutal death. And, and nobody even knows because he loved them the same. So Judas was either a very good actor or faker, or, or he was in. He was in for a time. He was a disciple. He was a follower of Jesus. He gave up a lot to be with Jesus. He might have been even excited about the prospect of what Jesus could do. But we learned from the word of God that he never personally trusted in Jesus for salvation. Just incredible uh, to think of the love of the Lord Jesus here. But, but he knew this. This was a foreknowledge thing. Now, we get to verse 65, and this is kind of a, one of those uh, verses that gets yanked out of context a lot to prove a certain theological persuasion. We'll try to cover this here uh, in the next few minutes. But verse 65 reads this, and he said, uh, therefore, I said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. Now, before we, we dive into the details of this verse, I, I want to talk about these transitions words that Jesus uses to get into this verse um, first. And, and I think this will help us with the flow of what he says. Um, this phrase, and he said, said is in the imperfect tense. Imperfect indicates that Jesus had been saying this. It kind of reflects continual action in the past. So this isn't something he just said, but it, it, the idea is that in this dialogue, he had been repeatedly saying this. He had been repeatedly communicating this, this very thing. And he said it again, but he'd been saying this. And so he kind of repeats it. And that's why I believe he uses the word therefore. He's going to say, because of this, it's, it's an interesting word for therefore. There's lots of different ways to say therefore in the Greek, but this is a compound way, dia tuto. And it means because of this, because of this reason. And naturally, if you're studying the Bible, what does that cause you to ask? Because of what, right? This is... So we're, we're trying to kind of tie this to the text. Well, if we bring the Lord's words together here from the previous verse without the additional words of explanation in between, it says, there are some of you who do not believe, therefore I have said to you. So if you go back up to verse 64, if you take out, if you've got a red letter Bible, if you take out the black editorial comment that John has there, that it flows a little bit for this reason, Okay. There are some of you who do not believe, therefore, for this reason, I have said to you. And you know, the problem was not that they could not believe in Christ. It was that they did not believe in Christ. And that's a big difference. That's a big stated difference. Now, one of the reasons we know that, like, why could we say that? That seems like a very slanted way to say that. But let me tell you why I believe we can say that from the text. Because when you go back to verse 64, he uses the active voice for believe. They had the ability and they were choosing not to believe. That's why we, we try to notice those things as we go along so that we're not ripping things out of context. They chose not to believe. And Jesus is simply reiterating the fact that without God's intervention of drawing that we saw in verse 44, no one would be enabled to exercise a choice to believe. In fact, even when he is drawing, many people will still choose not to believe. And I think that's what, why Jesus goes back to this point here. He says, and let's kind of look at this phrase a little bit. No one can come to me. Against, uh, again, come to me as Erkomai describes the process of one exercising faith 
in Christ. We've, we've kind of saw this throughout the passage. Come to me is just kind of a synonym for believing in me. And so no one can come to me. And, the, and again, the word can, here's the Greek word dunamai. It means to have the, to, the ability to have power by your own resources. The point again is this, the natural state of man will not seek God. That's what we saw when we looked at that back in John 6.44, unless God intervenes. Did God intervene for every man, woman, and child on earth? Yes or no? One theological persuasion says no. He only did that for a few. Another theological persuasion says he did it for all. He drew all so that all now have the ability to believe. The question is, will they? And so again, John 6.44, the condition was, no one can come to me, believe in me, unless the Father who sent me draws him. And John 12.32 and if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. So what's the condition for being drawn? It's when Christ died on the cross, which verse 33 goes on to say. And so again, I, I think all that Jesus is communicating here, and he's explaining to this crowd, the reason they're having a, a, a difficult time to believe is it is difficult for natural man to choose to put their faith in Jesus Christ, even if God has cleared the decks, which he has by drawing all to him. Many will still choose not to believe. And we're seeing the working out of that here in Jesus's audience. And this is why he says, you know, this ability to believe must be granted. It's this kind of this condition, unless uh, it shows that universal state of lack of ability of anyone, unless the father intervenes. Now this verse uh, intervention here is described as being granted or gifted to a hypothetical person without the ability to believe on the Lord Jesus. How does God grant that gifting? By drawing. And this is where verse 44 fits in. How does he grant that or give somebody the ability to believe? He draws them. And who does he draw? Everyone. And how does he draw them? Well, we looked at that list, but primarily it's through the the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's how he wants to draw people to himself. So this word granted is also used in the perfect passive. It indicates that a point in time in the past, this ability to come to Christ was given to a person by God with the results of that ability remaining in the present. And so in Jesus's audience case, had God been drawing them? He had. So had he granted them the ability to believe? He had through his drawing work. Now, does everyone sitting in this room have the ability to believe? Everyone since the cross work of Christ? We do. Why? Because he's already granted us the ability to believe. How? By lifting Jesus Christ up, he draws all men to himself. And so this is how I, you know, trying to, in terms of fitting this passage Together, And so the question becomes, what exactly is this describing or what does being granted mean? Well, I've said it in brief. This is really the debate that's been going on for centuries between Calvinist and non-Calvinist circles. Notice I don't say Calvinist and Arminian circles because a lot of people think those are the only two views you can hold. I disagree with that wholeheartedly. I think there's another view that would just be described as non-Calvinistic, non-Arminian. But, you know, that doesn't just kind of roll off the tongue easily, you know, so it's, it's kind of too many syllables. There, I believe there's a third view. You don't have to be in one of those two camps. So we're not, we're not promoting Arminianism by not promoting Calvinism. What's the Calvinistic view? Let's move through this quickly. This view would say that the ability to believe is granted to a person and the very act of believing is also granted to a person. In other words, they would teach that whoever God grants the ability to believe will definitely believe in Jesus. They've got no choice. This is called irresistible grace, right? In their TULIP acronym. To put it negatively, they would say God does not grant the ability to believe to some who will eventually reject him. 
okay? So he, he, he grants the ability to believe to some, but he doesn't grant it to others, okay? This is, I'm putting it simplistically. I'm sure there's some nuance. If there was a Calvinist up there, I'm sure they would, they would nuance this view a little bit. I'm just kind of cutting to uh, the baseline. So this view would actually require faith then as a gift from God, meaning that mankind alone does not or cannot exercise faith via their own volition. Now, part of that statement I would agree with, they can't unless God draws. But we've already looked at God draws all. So that's not the issue anymore. Ability is not the issue anymore. In fact, do you know that the Bible does not teach that faith is the gift of God? In fact, some of the passages that are often used, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, doesn't teach it. The Greek grammar does not support that view at all. And if you're interested in seeing that, I'd be happy to meet with you and look over that with you. It's a, it's a very simple, quick look, but it doesn't teach that. Romans 12, 3 is another one that's thrown out, but it's speaking of the exercise of spiritual gifts, the execution of spiritual gifts, not how to be saved. So it doesn't teach that faith is a gift. In fact, it teaches salvation's a gift. And you know why salvation's free to you? Because Jesus paid for it in full. That's why it's a free gift to you and I. Also, uh, the problem with this view, in my opinion, again, is that even in this context, John 6, the word believe is always used in the active voice. If it's a gift from God and God does the believing in and through, you'd have to be in the passive voice. You have to be, grammatically. So it's always in the active voice. Not only that, all the phrases that are used as illustrations for believe reflect an active choice part on the person believing. Eat and drink throughout the passage, used in the active voice. Come to me is in the middle voice, but that still requires your volition to do it. It's just you receive the benefits. It's reflexive. You're still doing the one believing. So as a quick illustration, suppose I I wanted to buy something. I needed a product or service and it cost $100. I didn't have it. You gave me $100. You have now removed my inability to buy that product. I've got the ability to buy it. But on my way to the, to, to the product, I see a new Chicago-style pizza opening up. And I'm like, oh, do I really need that vacuum cleaner? Should I just go stuff my face with pizza? Now I've got a choice. You've cleared the deck. You've given me the ability to go buy that vacuum cleaner. But now I have to choose to actually put that money down and take that vacuum cleaner out of the store. That's what I believe we're talking about here is, is he's cleared the deck, but will you choose to believe? That is the million dollar question. So the ability to believe is from God and God alone. The responsibility to believe and choose to do so is entirely ours. And I think that's probably a good way to try to bring all of this up together. In fact, how could God hold anyone accountable for something they can't do? You know what I mean? I mean, if we had a a group of quadriplegics in the back and I said, look, if if y'all don't get up and stand and praise Jesus right now, we're going to throw you out of this church. That would be insensitive, insanely insensitive of me to require them to do something that they cannot do and then hold them accountable for not being able to do it? It just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't fit the justice of God. Now, I've got a good, great quote by Lewis Berry Schaefer. You'll just have to read it another time because I'm going to have to keep rolling. The second view, what I would call the non-Calvinistic view, this is the view that, that we would hold, is we would say that the ability to believe is granted to all, and then the responsibility to believe is placed solely on the individual person. They have to choose to believe or reject Jesus Christ. And based on that choice, they'll spend eternity in heaven or they'll spend eternity in hell. 
This is why 1 John makes it very clear. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. It's a very simple equation. The choices are put before us. The outcomes are determined. Will you or will you not trust in what Jesus did for you? That's the million dollar question. This seems to fit the, the context of John 6, the overall context of the Bible regarding, uh, regarding man's responsibility and culpability for not believing in Jesus or believing in him. And this again was accomplished, this, this ability, given the ability to believe was accomplished through the Father's drawing ministry as well as the Spirit convicting ministry. We looked at that uh, a couple of weeks ago, but the Spirit is drawing who or convicting the world. That's what I meant to ask. Convicting who is the world, right? The world, all. So this is the drawing aspect. So now as we close out this morning, we've kind of alluded to it. We kind of know where this is going. Verse 66, two responses of this larger group of Jesus's disciples. From that time, many of the disciples went back and walked with him no more. Again, from what time? The completion of this bread of life discourse. First response was immediate. They, they went to the back. You know, they had front row seats. They're, they're trying to listen. They're like, ah, don't hear. You can just go in front. And they go to the back of the group. It's kind of the idea here to the back is, is what you can say. The second response had an ongoing effect. It says many of them walked with him no more. It meant that they, they no longer followed him. They went back to what they were doing before they decided to start following Jesus. They literally quit being disciples. They were never believers. They quit being disciples and they no longer followed him. And what's really interesting, and we'll get here next week, is Jesus is now going to turn to his 12 hand-selected disciples, and he's gonna give them an opportunity to go back and leave them too. He's gonna say, you wanna leave me too? There's, there's the door. Not in a rude way. I mean, we kind of view that in a rude way, but if you wanna leave, this is the time. Look at everyone else leaving. You can leave too. And this is where we get to Peter's grand statement. Poor, poor Peter gets picked on a lot, but next week he is coming right to the front of the class. <laughs> he's getting a sticker on his forehead for this one. So let's pray. Lord, we rejoice in you. We rejoice in your great love for us, demonstrated by the fact that you died in our place. You died the death that we deserved as a result of our sin. We are mind blown by the depth of your love for us. We don't even, I don't think, begin to even comprehend how deep your love is for us. We just rejoice in the Lord Jesus we want to be occupied with you more, Lord. We, we just enjoy what you say. We love your words. They are the words of life, as Peter will say next week. We, we give a wholehearted amen to that statement. And we want to just value your will and your words as we go about our daily living. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.